YouTube Music is a new app that combines everything you expect from a streaming service with the magic, we know all about magic, of YouTube to bring everything to life. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps, finally. Get music whenever you want it, even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then, pay just $9.99 per month. Ooh! Terms and restrictions apply. Warning. And never have we so sincerely issued this warning. Binge Mode contains adult content. In this episode, we will be discussing many events, including the moment when Harry got <laughs> down by the lake. <laughs> including that. That moment down by the lake when Jennifer Weasley took Harry all the way deep. Deep! Exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe down by the lake. So if that's not the kind of thing you're into, exploring the wide canon of Harry Potter, please check out the Ringer NBA show. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. It does. (laughs) You don't yet know why we're hiding our sherry bottles. Please proceed. Extreme caution. And now, binge mode. (laughs) And now, (laughs) binge mode. Yes, this is the place, said Dumbledore. How can you tell? Harry spoke in a whisper. It has known magic, said Dumbledore simply. Harry could not tell whether the shivers he was experiencing were due to his spine-deep coldness or to the same awareness of enchantments. He watched as Dumbledore continued to revolve on the spot, evidently concentrating on things Harry could not see. This is merely the antechamber, the entrance hall, said Dumbledore after a moment or two. We need to penetrate the inner place. Now it is Lord Voldemort's obstacles that stand in our way rather than those nature made. Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. That's right. I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Joining me today. Now that he's settled on the design for his Hungarian horntail chest tag. I honestly might get it. I think you should. I'll get the pygmy pop. It's perfect. Yeah. It's Ringer Senior Creative. That's right. And you're a head pornsman. Jason Concepcion. Mal, it's just more macho. Just like Binge Mode Harry Potter. Where? Like Ginevra Weasley, we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Boy, are we. Whether you're in the mood for a spell, for friends, or for enemies, oh. please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us five points, five stars for binge mode. Please follow us down to the lake on Twitter and Instagram <laughs> at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. And join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share tips for how to spend time down by the lake. Harry's got some ideas. Does he? You know, he's got some ideas, but Ginevra has some actual methods. 
now he knows what a wet kiss is, truly. <laughs> the Lord's kiss, am I right, ladies? Uh, <laughs> Harry thought, you know, the school year's almost over, but then it turned out he's got a lot more learning to do. <laughs> he's got to take his owls. <laughs> his owls. <laughs> Last time on Binge Mode Harry Potter, <laughs> we explored how clarity shapes chapters 20 through 23 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And on today's right. episode, mm-hmm. diving into chapters 24 through 26. Yes. Despite what the tone of the intro might indicate, this will be a intense episode. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge is always, while those chapters are today's primary focus, we will, much like Ginny and Harry, be going deep. On details from all seven books and eight oh, yeah. films. Take it all. And the wider wide Potter the, canon. Take the whole canon. <laughs> Taking the entire series into account from the moment we breathe in the fresh, salty air. So slide off the boulder, swim toward the fissure. Okay. Because it's time to head, both metaphorically and literally, to the cave. Mal, if I tell you to hide, you will do so? Yes. If I tell you to flee, you will obey? Yes. And if I tell you to leave me and save the plot points, you will do as I tell you? I... Mal? <sighs> yes, sir. In that case, let's offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Prince Chapters 24 to 26 by climbing aboard the Scarlet Steam Engine to plot the Hogwarts Express! After years of buildup, Ever since they met at Madame Malkin's and then had a row on their first ride on the Hogwarts Express, Harry and Malfoy finally engage in a safeties off. No holds barred. Duel. And with some help from a half-blood prince curse labeled for enemies, Harry wins. (laughs) Oh, what a win. Except that victory, heavy air quotes, leaves Malfoy in a bloody heap on the floor with Harry in detention with Snape for the rest of the school year and having to stash his potions book in the room of requirement. A win is a win. There is one silver lining, though, which is that after Gryffindor wins the Quidditch Cup with Harry in detention, he and Ginny kiss at long last. Yeah! And proceed to start dating. Uh-huh. And spend some wonderful afternoons, you know, down by the lake. As the year draws toward a close, Harry receives a note from Dumbledore. It's go time. The headmaster has found a Horcrux hideout. Unfortunately, on the way to Albus's office, Harry runs into Professor Trelawney, who reveals that Snape was the Death Eater who overheard half of her prophecy, thus dooming Lily and James to their deaths. Oh, that's not going to go over well with Harry, is it? I think he's going to take that personally, actually. (laughs) Harry and Dumbledore travel to a seaside cave where they penetrate Voldemort's defenses and collect what they think is the locket that they had come to find, but only after surpassing some excruciating obstacles that leave Dumbledore enfeebled and hanging on to Harry for dear life. Jason. Yes. If Isaac chooses to ignore the warning signs the cards show again and again, no matter how I lay them out, the lightning struck podcast calamity disaster coming nearer all the time. There's nothing I can do about it, but it does get us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 24 through 26 of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince is Facing the Darkness. 
Chapter 24, Sectum Sempra. The next morning, an exhausted but delighted Harry catches up with Ron and Hermione on the prior evening's breakthrough. And they're impressed with his Felix-aided slughorn work and, quote, positively awed about the Horcruxes and Dumbledore's promise to take him along for the next hunt. Ron has some news of his own. He and Lavender broke up. Fucking finally. After Lav saw what she thought was just Ron and Hermione leaving the dorm, you know, fresh from doing whatever young kids do. Hermione, clearly overjoyed by Ron's breakup, pipes up. She says, it was a bad night for romance all around. Ginny and Dean split up too, Harry. Wink, 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 wink. Cough, 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 wink. The portrait hole push, air quotes, caused by Harry and the Felix was the last gasp for that already rocky relationship. I'm just going to go ahead and say now that if that breaks you up, you are headed for the break. <laughs> Upon hearing this news, Harry's insides were, quote, suddenly dancing the conga. Harry's at war with himself over how to balance his feelings for Ginny, now a free agent on the open market, with his worries about, you know, how Ron, his best mate, is going to feel about this. He'll get over it. He will. He'll have to. As we've seen all book, though, there's one thing that occupies Harry's thoughts even more fully than Ginny. Draco. And when our trio gets back to the common room, it's to find Katie Bell healed and whole. And Harry, like, immediately. No! How you feeling? Can I help you catch up on your studies? He's just like... Anything you need? Who gave you the necklace? Who did it? Incredible. She can't recall. Her last memory, she says, is of entering the bathroom with the three broomsticks. Still, Katie's return sends Harry falling right back into his obsession stranglehold, declaring that he's going to take more Felix, remember, he saved some, and have another go at the Room of Requirement. Hermione, thank the gods, points out what a colossal waste of the lucky potion this would be. Quote, luck can only get you so far, Harry, she says, noting that the Slughorn situation was totally different than what he's proposing here. With Slughorn, Harry always had the ability to have that conversation in that way. Felix just guided him, just showed him how. This is different. This is magic that Harry hasn't figured out, and the potion cannot break through that. She reminds Harry, by the way, that he has another occasion coming up for which some Felix Felicis might be quite useful. The Horcrux hunt with Dumbledore. It's kind of important. That's an important one. Don't you think, Harry? (laughs) But of course, Harry can't shake this idea. So he checks in with the Half-Blood Prince's advanced potion-making book and sees, you know, just how hard it would be to brew some Felix. It would take six months. Six months. Okay, so that's out. But as Harry is flipping through the book, he spots a corner folded over to mark the spell Sectum Sempra. Hey, isn't that what this chapter's called? That's right. Which, oh, boy. Which you will recall, as we talked about previously, is labeled for enemies. This is an incredible moment when he's like, <laughs> shall I just try this here in the common area? And what stops him? Literally, what's the only thing that stops him? That Hermione happens to be there. (laughs) I just love the idea that Harry was about to, like, decapitate (laughs) Seamus or something. (laughs) But luckily, Hermione there keeps him from doing it. Another incredible quote here. Was considering trying it out on McClagan next time he came up behind him unawares. Jesus, imagine if Harry had literally murdered McClagan. McClagan's intestines hanging out of his body. Speaking of our really terrible dude, Cormac McClagan, Quidditch, at least, is improving. 
Ron's fit, which means no more McClagan, and Katie's back, which means Dean is off the team until Harry's impending absence, that is. And thus, there's no chance of squad drama between him and Ginny. Far from being lost in the darkness following her breakup with Dean, Ginny is the life of the party, mocking Ron and Harry and energizing the whole side. Ginny's, Ginny is not meant to be locked up. It may be cuffing season, but not for Ginny. Ginny's looking to cast off these cuffs. On the downside, Harry keeps getting hit by bludgers because he can't stop staring at the auburn hair of Ginevra Weasley. From the book again, the battle still raged inside his head. Ginny or Ron? Come on. How hard is this? It's not so a, even wild. a battle. His good friend Ron. He's sure ultimately that Ron would consider it, quote, base treachery if Harry pursued Ginny, which is odd, really odd, seeing as Ron is like basically constantly trying to fuck Flem slash Fleur every time he sees her. Yes, his brother's fiance. His like tongue is hanging <laughs> out of his mouth at all times. From the book again, however much his conscience ached, his conscience. Yeah, that, he found is that himself, what he calls his groin? He found himself wondering how best to get her on her own. Oh, Harry. He's hoping for yet another Slughorn party because Ron won't be there. <laughs> Tough look for Ron. Quite a change <laughs> from scheduling practice against the Slug Club gathering so Ron won't feel left out. But no invites come. He even considers asking Hermione for advice but doesn't want to see, quote, the smug look on her face. Although he's pretty sure that Hermione's onto him already. You think so? I mean, she mentioned it directly <laughs> to you while staring like into your eyes. Also, who cares? Yeah, who cares? Harry, she knows. Like Harry she's your best friend. Continues to be quite slow on the uptake. I find it very charming it is and winning great. that he struggles with romance this much, as we will talk about momentarily. Harry is sure, sure that he is on the clock here. Quote: He had the nagging worry that if he didn't do it. Somebody else was sure to ask Ginny out soon. He and Ron were at least agreed on the fact that she was too popular for her own good. I think she's as popular as she wants to be. Go get it, Ginny. Fucking boys. He's seriously considering taking Felix for this purpose now to try, as Hermione had said, tweaking the circumstances a bit. This is all high comedy, but also so truly charming because there is something immensely relatable about Harry's romantic foibles. He is literally the chosen one. Yeah. And he's a jock to boot. Girls are throwing it at him. Quidditch captain. Girls literally line the halls to try to kiss him. Romilda, Romilda Vane is out here like, yes. They are so eager to earn his invite to a holiday party that they smuggle illicit love potions into his candies. As Hermione said earlier in the book, when throngs showed up for Quidditch tryouts, he's never been more fanciable. Harry is a hot commodity. And yet he's utterly at a loss for how to try to land a date. <laughs> a date, by the way. With a girl he's now known for five years and like been aware of for six. Mm -hmm. A girl he saved from his good friend Tom. A girl who was so deeply in love with him for so long that she once couldn't be around him without turning a shade to match her hair and sticking her elbow into the butter dish. Ron complications aside, Harry shouldn't worry about pursuing Ginny or anyone else. And yet it feels like staring into the abyss for him. The darkness that will eat him whole and not in a good way. But Ginny is, of course, only part of this love triangle that Harry has. There's also his purest love, Expelliarmus, and of Always. course, the ever-distracting temptress, Quidditch. Excitement for the Gryffindor-Ravenclaw match is rampant, as it will decide the Quidditch Cup. Harry needs to win by 300 points. 
And Harry wants to win because he loves Quidditch and wants his captaincy to be a success. But he also can't help but think that a raucous, joyous after party might be a great way of bringing him and Ginny just as good as taking a swig of Felix. He's still, of course, making time to hunt Malfoy, find out what Malfoy is up to. And a few days before the Quidditch match, he spots something quite odd on the map. Malfoy in the boys' room with moaning Myrtle. Oh, Draco! (laughs) Remember what Myrtle recently said to Harry and Ron? A boy had been in there crying, feeling alone, bullied, and helpless. Harry dashes off to investigate. Harry presses his ear against the bathroom door, but he can't hear a thing. Quietly, he pushes it open for a peek, and he spies Draco, clutching the sink, his head bowed. And Myrtle is asking him what's wrong, asking how she can help. And even for just this one moment that we get, this glimpse of Myrtle and Draco interacting, this is among the least likely pairings in the entire series. Draco's father, remember, put Riddle's diary back into circulation. The diary that opened the Chamber of Secrets. The diary containing the memory of the boy Riddle who murdered Myrtle at school. Draco and his father hurl the word mudblood at people like Myrtle with reckless abandon, with no concern for the consequences. Not merely with cruel disregard for those people's feelings, but as an active effort to wound by making Muggleborns feel lesser. And yet Draco is so alone with his burden, so crippled by the prospect of staring down death for himself and likely for his family if he stumbles. So resentful, as we will come to see in time. Cursed child, what's up? Of the weight that his father's choices put on him. So lost in the darkness of his failure to accomplish the task that Lord Voldemort set him that he's turning to Myrtle, the least likely of confidants, for comfort. It's one of the rare moments until Hallows and, of course, Cursed Child, where we see Draco in shades, in degrees, absent his typical bravado, displaying not prejudice for once, but vulnerability. Quote, no one can help me, said Malfoy. His whole body was shaking. I can't do it. I can't. It won't work. And unless I do it soon, he says he'll kill me. The passage continues. And Harry realized with a shock so huge it seemed to root him to the spot that Malfoy was crying, actually crying, tears streaming down his pale face into the grimy basin. Malfoy gasped and gulped and then, with a great shudder, looked up into the cracked mirror and saw Harry staring at him over his shoulder. (laughs) Draco whips around to face Harry, draws his wand. Harry draws his two and they trade spells. Bang, bang, bang. Myrtle is crying for them to stop. Harry tries to use Levicorpus and Leg Locker. And then as Draco, this should be noted, this is important. Mm-hmm. Draco says, Crucy! Harry, facing the boy he's always thought of as an enemy, uses the spell labeled for enemies from the book. Sectumsempra! Bellowed Harry from the floor, waving his wand wildly. Blood spurted from Malfoy's face and chest as though he'd been slashed with an invisible sword. He staggered backward and collapsed onto the waterlogged floor with a great splash, his wand falling from his limp right hand. No, gasped Harry. He hurries over to Malfoy, who's gushing blood, his hands grasping at his chest, shaking uncontrollably. No, I didn't. Harry's horrified by what he's done. He hates Draco, of course, but he doesn't want to actually murder him. He doesn't want to hurt others. He's repulsed by dark magic, not drawn to it. But here, in his anger and in the heat of the moment, he's accidentally used dark magic. It's contrary to everything he stands for, but... Perhaps most distressingly, it stemmed from so much of what he does believe in, trust, friendship, and guidance, which he believed he had with the Half-Blood Prince in his potions book. Myrtle, helpfully, 
shouting that there's been a murder <laughs> in the bathroom. Just as Harry's crouching in a pool of Malfoy's blood, Snape bursts into the bathroom, quote, his face livid. Snape, remember, has sworn the unbreakable vow to keep Draco alive, has agreed, as we will eventually learn in Hallows, to kill Dumbledore in order to spare Malfoy's soul the irreparable damage that murder causes. And now the other boy that he's secretly sworn to protect has reduced Draco to ribbons on the bathroom floor. Short of Voldemort finding Snape out, this is basically a worst-case scenario. Except Snape is no stranger to looking into the darkness, nor, by extension, to knowing what's necessary to emerge from it. He looked into that darkness so often and so deeply as a boy that, as we'll learn at book's end, he actually invented the spell that Harry just used, invented a way to maim people he loathed, invented dark magic. Sectum, Latin for to cut. Semper, Latin for always. We will learn in Hallows after Snape slices off George's ear using the spell— Amiss will realize in time that stemmed from Snape actually trying to save Lupin and wound a Death Eater, that the spell is so dark that the damage it does sometimes cannot be repaired even magically. George's ear is never reattached. This is vile magic, a monstrous thing. And it's part of Snape, a part he worked to grow beyond and redeem, to use in time for good, as in the Seven Potters Escape. But it is not a part that we can ignore, and not a part that he can forget. The darkness is with him always. And here, he calls upon its lessons. The creation that he birthed so long ago as a lonely boy hell-bent on proving himself great and worthy. He pushes Harry aside and kneels over Draco, tracing his wand over the carnage that Harry's magical sword strokes made. Quote, muttering an incantation that sounded almost like song. This is a description worth considering. In this story, we often associate song with healing with phoenixes, with Dumbledore, with good. And though there is no overt phoenix mention here, we can't help but think of the other times that we've seen song and healing paired in this story. These subtle moments, these small descriptions, point toward the parts of Snape's nature that will win out in the end and remind us that even the darkest moments, the darkest spells, and the darkest people can still find the light. After Snape performs his counter-curse three times, he tells Harry to wait for him here while he escorts Malfoy to the hospital wing. From the book, it did not occur to Harry for a second to disobey. Truly rare where Snape is concerned, and an insight into Harry's state of horror and shock. He's often inclined to explain an excuse, but not here. He's frozen by what he's just done. When Snape returns, he sends Myrtle away, and Harry immediately begins to try to explain. He says, I didn't mean it to happen, he says, truly. I didn't know what the spell did, and yet he tried it anyway. He was about to try it. Mm-hmm. Previously, his intention was not to use dark magic, no, but his recklessness was nearly fatal. Hermione's warnings went unheeded, as did Mr. Weasley's long-ago words and Ginny's ensuing pleas about not trusting magical books without seeing their brains, without knowing their authors and their truths. Mm-hmm. Snape, of course, knows the truth of the book, recognizes his handiwork quite well, because, of course, he wrote it. Apparently, I underestimated you, Potter, he said quietly. Who would have thought you knew such dark magic? Who taught you that spell? Chilling moment. Okay. Snape isn't about to offer up that it's his invention, but his suspicion, already so heightened in light of Slughorn's glowing praise of Harry's potions prowess, kicks into hyperdrive. Though Harry doesn't know the source of Snape's intrigue or the source of Snape's knowledge of the spell or Snape's true identity and allegiance, hearing the man he so loathes say that he underestimated him implied that in using dark magic, Harry has shown Snape some facet of himself he's never seen before. 
must feel almost as bad as committing the act itself. Harry detests Snape and all he stands for is certain that he never left the darkness behind. In this moment, he knows that he's in the darkness with Snape. But listen, that does not mean he's going to rat out his good friend, the prince. All Harry can do here is scramble. That's right. Lie feebly, he says. I read the spell in the library book. Harry, my guy, you got to do better than this. He is a professor at the school. He knows what's in the library, and he knows this isn't there. Quote, liar, said Snape. Harry's throat went dry. He knew what Snape was going to do, and he had never been able to prevent it. This is a really helpless moment for Harry, already feeling so ashamed of what he's inadvertently done. Now, also feeling that special kind of shame, that particular hell that his occlumency failures with Snape brought. As Harry stands defenseless, still unable to block his mind from the very man who tried to teach him how to do it, the prince's copy of advanced potion making appears before his hazy eyes. Bring me your school bag, Snape tells him, and all of your school books, all of them, bring them to me here now. Harry runs to Gryffindor Tower. Quote, he felt stunned. It was as though a beloved pet had turned suddenly savage. What had the prince been thinking? to copy such a spell into his book. Harry's panicked about what Snape will think, about whether he'll tell Slughorn and shatter Harry's image. Quote, would he confiscate or destroy the book that had taught Harry so much, the book that had become a kind of guide and friend? Harry could not let it happen. He could not. Harry is running from Snape in order to protect his bond with Snape, he just doesn't realize it. The irony here is so thick that even Sectumsempra would have a hard time cutting through it. Harry runs covered in water and blood, not to get the book and hand over this mystery teacher that has misled him and betrayed him in this moment, but to ask Ron to help him cover it up, to protect the friend who has taught him so much. He asks Ron for his book, promising to explain later, and then flees for the room of requirement. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. The room of requirement opens for him, and Harry runs in. Despite the stress of the moment, despite everything, lets out a gasp of shock at what he sees from the book. He was standing in a room the size of a large cathedral whose high windows were sending shafts of light down upon what looked like a city with towering walls built of what Harry knew must be objects hidden by generations of Hogwarts inhabitants. This is such a cool image and such a cool thing to think about, like generations, centuries of people who have been here who have needed to hide something. And surely the amount of things that have needed to be hidden and the reasons for which they would need to be discarded are legion. More on that in the seven. There are thousands of banned books, decaying potions, even bloodstained and rusty weapons, surely murder weapons. Harry stumbled into years and years and years of hidden treasures and shame alike. Secrets and lies stashed away in the darkness where no one but other secret keepers can see. When he reaches a large cupboard with a blistered front, he stashes the book inside, then is seized by panic over whether he'll be able to find his way back. He fully intends to go back and get the book after surviving his encounter with Snape. Much like Harry's relationship with the actual Snape, his relationship with Snape's book is imperfect. There's darkness there, yes, but Harry knows that there's also good in the book. There's stuff in there worth protecting and so much there left to learn. He doesn't yet know that the same is true of Snape himself, but it always has been, and in time, Harry will see that. To ensure he can find the book again, he marks it. More on this in the seven also. And he runs back to the bathroom, shoving Ron's book into his bag as he goes. Harry hands his bag to Snape, withholding the mystery from the man who is the answer to the riddle. 
And Snape pulls out Harry's books, reaching the potions book last. And after a moment's careful consideration, Snape asks if this is Harry's book, and Harry says it is. You're quite sure of that, are you, Potter? Yes, said Harry with a touch more defiance. This is the copy of advanced potion making that you purchased from Flourish and Blotts? Yes, said Harry firmly. This is iconic. (laughs) Then why, asked Snape. (laughs) This kills me every time. This is so funny. (laughs) Does it have the name Runal (laughs) Wazlib written inside the front cover? (gasps) Fucking Wan Wan and his janky ass quill. My guy, Runil Wazlib. Love Runil Wazlib. <laughs> Love Runil. Harry says, uh, it's my nickname, <laughs> which is just a priceless effort to tread water here. Yeah, that's what my friends call me, said Harry. I understand what a nickname is, said Snape. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Who does not read Harry's mind again, as Harry is bracing for, but does call him a liar and a cheat and hits him with detention. Every Saturday for the rest of term. This is another priceless exchange. What do you think, Potter? I I don't agree, sir. <laughs> Again, this moment, really this entire chapter, this is JK at her best. This chapter is so full of violence and despair, of shame and doubt. And yet, here there's comedy, even hilarity in abundance. There will be romance in mere moments. This is a true master at work. Snape doesn't just give Harry detention, by the way. He gives him detention at 10 on Saturday during Gryffindor's final Quidditch match, meaning Harry will miss his approximately 8 millionth match of his Hogwarts tenure. Harry very rarely actually plays Quidditch. It's <laughs> secret. Everyone is miserable. Harry's told Ron, Hermione, and Ginny what occurred, but Myrtle has also shrieked the news to the whole school, and Snape has, of course, told his fellow teachers. From the book, Harry had already been called out of the common room to endure 15 highly unpleasant minutes in the company of Professor McGonagall. Indeed, McGallion can't be happy that a prize seeker, Joseph Captain, is going to miss the decisive <laughs> match when anything from a fourth-place finish to the cup is still in play. Hermione can't help but go into I-told-you-so mode, saying— Good cover from McGallion when she's like, I agree with this. Yeah. Sure. Hermione says, quote, I told you there was something wrong with that prince person, and I was right, wasn't I? But Harry isn't ready to concede that yet. Will you stop harping on about the book, snapped Harry? The prince only copied it out. It's not like he was advising anyone to use it. For all we know, he was making a note of something that had been used against him. Now, first of all, I have to note that this is not true. It was labeled specifically for enemies. Definitely counts as advising Mm -hmm. when to use this, yes. and with specific instructions about who to target. And of course, Harry's wrong about whether or not the prince invented it. The same blinding belief that at this moment still prevents Harry from seeing the good in Snape is preventing Harry from seeing the darkness in Snape's book and in the prince. Harry notes that without the prince, he wouldn't have won the Felix, which is true. The prince's instruction, much like the prince himself, unbeknownst to Harry, has consistently guided Harry toward the light. Harry's heart is... Full of nothing but darkness and longing comes Saturday when Ron and Ginny and Dean and co. head off for the match and he heads off for Snape's office. Snape sets him the task of updating the old rule breaker files, copying out the details of damaged old cards. You will not use magic, (laughs) Snape tells him, and then directs him toward a specific box with some, quote, familiar names in it. He grabs a card and reads it. It's about James and Sirius from Snape. Quote, it must be such a comfort to think that though they are gone, a record of their great achievements remains. This is such a dick move here. 
Harry struggles to control his temper, knowing that Snape is trying to get a rise, knowing that Snape counted on every appearance of his father's name or Sirius's name or Lupin's name, giving him that jolt in the stomach. And Harry harps on how useless, how pointless the work is, fitting, given the current circumstance. Harry caught between Snape and the Marauders. The hate so thick it blots out the sun. And when Snape dismisses him, finally, Harry finds that the match is already over, and he runs to the common room. The fat lady swings open and a roar greets Harry. Gryffindor has won the cup. Quote, here we go, guys. Ready? Harry looked around. (laughs) I love this so much. There was Ginny running toward him. She had a hard, blazing look in her face as she threw her arms around him. (laughs) This is so great. And without thinking, without planning it, without worrying about the fact that 50 people were watching. Harry kissed her. (laughs) This is so good. After several long moments, (laughs) or it might have been half an hour or possibly several sunlit days, they broke apart. There's silence in the room. Then there are whistles. Dean is shattering the glass that he's holding in his hand. Hermione's ecstatic, but Harry, of course, is seeking out one one. Quote, for a fraction of a second, they looked at each other. Then Ron gave a tiny jerk of the head that Harry understood to mean, well, if you must. If you must fuck my sister, then you must. (laughs) Harry smiles down at Ginny and ushers her out of the common room. Quote, a long walk in the grounds seemed indicated, during which, if they had time, they might discuss the match. In a chapter so full of darkness and despair and really pure terror and violence, Harry gets the girl. In a chapter so heavy on Snape, the man who dedicated the rest of his life To honoring the girl he never got, we get yet another reminder of how the light and dark are always intertwined. Much like Harry and Ginny. Yes. Down by the lake. Down by the lake. This is so good. For something that readers and Harry alike had been waiting for and anticipating for so long, it is just perfect. Like, how am I going to get her on my own? How am I going to do it? And then she just fucking runs to him. I just love the fact that Ginny's like, I am victorious. Mm Mm-hmm. And now I will take my prize. Totally. I mean, Harry would would have waited forever. Yeah. But Ginny got it done. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it. Chapter 25, The Seer Overheard. Harry and Ginny, Hogwarts' new power couple, are naturally the source of (laughs) endless buzz in the castle. But for once, Harry's not fussed about driving the gossip. Ginny's, quote, making him happier than he Uh could remember being for a very long time. Blowjobs will do that. I mean, this is all manner of activities are happening. A lot of training for Harry. He's got to get trained up. He's not used to some of the dark arts involved with Ginevra. Who we must say is experienced in these things. Oh, yeah. You know. She knows what's up. And Harry, again, no clue. Her cave has known magic. You know, so... Oh, my God. As they sit in the common room, Ginny leaning against Harry's legs as she reads the paper. How charming. She says, you think people had better things to gossip about? Three dementor attacks in a week. And all Ramilda Vane does is ask me if it's true you've got a hippogriff tattooed across your chest. (laughs) Harry asks what she told him. A Hungarian horntail, much more macho. (laughs) Then in a sign that our guy hasn't quite the hang of this romance thing yet. Immediately says, and what did you tell her Ron's got? This is 
a brutal moment for Harry. Yeah, it's like, Harry, don't ask about your girlfriend's She's brother. She's literally talking about seeing you naked. Don't yeah. ask about her brother. What about Ron? <laughs> <laughs> what about Ron's body? Do you talk about Ron's body with Ramil Devane? <laughs> Harry, what is happening, my oh, guy? God. Jesus. Ginny, always ready with the always. swift rejoinder, says, a pygmy puff. But I didn't say where. She's the best. She's very, very good. <laughs> what a great Ginny book. Hermione's in fits of hysterics at this point, and though Ron acts the prat by sending up a, just because I've given my permission about this whole thing, Ginny then spikes it right back into his face with, since when did you give me permission to do anything? Elite stuff. The scene crackles with life and love. And it's a beautiful moment. Teenagers being teenagers, friends being friends, idiot brothers being idiot brothers. It's all part of Prince's majesty, far from an out-of-place intrusion on the severity of the story, but an urgent reminder of what they're all fighting to protect. It raises the stakes in a way that also raises the tension. In Harry's I knew it. pants? What an alley-oop. <laughs> Sadly, school's detracting from the romance. Ginny has to make time for owl prep amid the makeout sessions. So Harry's on his own more often than he'd like. That's right. At least he has plenty of happy memories to help him conjure a full. Quote! (laughs) On one such evening, when Ginny had retired to the library and Harry was sitting beside the window in the common room, supposedly finishing his herbology homework, but in reality reliving a particularly happy hour he had spent down by the lake with Ginny at lunchtime. Ooh. Oh, my. The seed of the chosen one (laughs) spilleth by the lake. So all this time when we've been reading about the giant squid, what? Some other suckers (laughs) going on down there. (laughs) Ginny's rough hands around the wand of the chosen one. Palms like a longshoreman still. The rooster strangling days were quite some time ago. Yes, but her technique is... Only improved since then. <laughs> Pulling out a full expecto patronum from the wand of the chosen one. Harry's got plenty of liquid luck, you know? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> it's honestly a good thing that he's had detention so much because he cannot ride a broom at this point. <laughs> walking like a fucking Bow-legged drover. Oh, my God. Down the halls of Hogwarts. (laughs) Ginny's putting him away wet. This uh, happy bit of reflection is interrupted when Hermione plops down and insists on talking to Harry about, quote, the so-called half-blood prince. Harry doesn't want to broach the subject again. He still hasn't been back for his book, and his potions performance is suffering accordingly. Quote, though Slughorn, who approved of Ginny, had jocularly attributed this to Harry being lovesick. Harry is just fucked out right now. (laughs) Hermione presses. She's been trying to figure out who'd, quote, make a hobby of inventing dark spells, which strikes Harry as a horribly unfair characterization, but isn't really totally off. Snape did do this, and he did become a Death Eater. She pulls out a newspaper clipping that she found featuring a skinny teenage girl who looks sullen and pallid, a.k.a. 
just like Snape. The caption IDs her as Eileen Prince, captain of the Hogwarts Gobstones team. Hmm. Neat. Harry naturally pushes back. He says he can tell the prince is a bloke. And he's right. Snape is a bloke. But Hermione will be proven right too. Eileen Prince, we will learn at book's end, is Snape's mother, the magical half that he was proud to identify with. The darkness of his own upbringing, the unhappy childhood that Harry glimpsed when he penetrated Snape's mind during occlumency lessons, informing the legacy that Snape sought to build for himself. Just as Harry and Ron are discussing the value of retrieving the prince's book and the injustice of Snape's ongoing detentions, Jimmy Peaks hands Harry a scroll, and it's from Dumbledore, and he wants Harry at his office ASAP. Harry runs off, eager to see what this is, if this is the anticipated Horcrux summons, what's going on? And as he's making his way through the corridors, he hears a scream and a crash. Oh, Daddy! (laughs) Harry, as we know, is a rescuing people thing, and he's ready to do just that. He runs towards the sound, and who does he find? But our good friend, Professor Sybil Trelawney, on the ground, surrounded by sherry bottles. As Harry helps up the hiccupings here, he realizes where they are. Professor, he says, were you trying to get into the room of requirement? She's like, oh, the things that are conjured. What did you say? Room of requirement? She's clearly surprised by the question, saying she didn't know the students knew about the room. She says that, you know, she's just trying to get in there to uh, deposit some, quote, certain um, personal items in the room. Nasty accusations. Of course, she's trying to hide her empties. Harry is very puzzled to find that she couldn't get in because the room had opened for him when he needed to hide the book. But she got in just fine, we learned. Mm -hmm. Things soured after because, quote, there was somebody already in there. And Harry asks her with great urgency who it was. He's worked feverishly, of course, to try to get into the room while Draco was inside to find out what plot Draco had afoot what he's been plotting, what he's been trying to get fixed and perhaps stashing in there, but he's been unable. The possibility that Trelawney had found a means of doing just that, a thing that Harry could not do, means that Harry could too. She says she heard a voice for the first time in her years of, quote, using the room, and the voice was not speaking, but whooping. Quote, gleefully, Harry confirms that this sounded happy, celebratory, and also that it sounded male. She called out, who's there? Harry's frustrated that she needed to ask. She's supposed to possess, of course, the sight. But as she notes, the inner eye was fixed on matters of greater urgency than this. Her query, however, was not met with a reply. Instead, the room turned black. The Peruvian instant darkness powder from Fred and George's shop, we'll learn. And she was hurled out of the room to where Harry found her on the floor. And you didn't see that coming? (laughs) Said Harry, unable to help himself. No, I did not. As I say, it was... Pitch. She stopped and glared at him suspiciously. That's amazing. Yeah. I love her so much. So many. I just she's Jen great. Trelawney dunks in that passage, but she is truly an icon. Harry implores her to tell Dumbledore. He has, of course, been waiting for more proof of Malfoy's treachery, and now he has it from someone other than himself. But Trelawney meets this suggestion with the same kind of cold dismissal that Harry met all of Ron and Hermione's. You should tell Dumbledore. Prompting with throughout Order of the Phoenix. Quote. The headmaster has intimated that he would prefer fewer visits from me, she tells Harry. (laughs) Intimated. (laughs) (laughs) After stating that she's not one to impose her presence on those who do not want it, she says something highly ominous. 
Quote, if Dumbledore chooses to ignore the warnings the cards show, again and again, no matter how I lay them out. And she pulled a card dramatically from underneath her shawls. The lightning struck tower, she whispered. Calamity, disaster, coming nearer all the time. Chills reading that. Harry moves right beyond this. He cannot know that she is once again making an accurate prediction, this Mm -hmm. time in a very different form from her two fabled prophecies, that later that very evening, Harry will watch Snape kill Dumbledore atop a lightning-struck tower, the dark mark gleaming above them. Recall Harry's earlier card-centric encounter with Trelawney in this book, when he overheard Mm -hmm. her on his way to Dumbledore's, proclaiming ill omens to come. Trelawney has seen the darkness drawing ever closer all year, all of her life, really, since she interviewed with Dumbledore in the first place. Dumbledore doesn't need to indulge her because he knows what awaits. He knows that the Horcrux curse has marked him for death, knows that Voldemort has tasked Draco with killing him, knows that Snape will wind up doing so instead. But Harry doesn't know any of this. He does know, however, that Trelawney made the prophecy that defined the course of his life, and also the one that foretold Wormtail's return to Voldemort and the Dark Lord's ensuing rise. And yet he pays no attention to what she's saying here. And look, in his defense, it would be hard for him to. He is totally overwhelmed by this Malfoy breakthrough, by the info he can use with Dumbledore, by the prospect of being able to get into the room of requirement with Draco in there after all. Mm -hmm. He's distracted as well by the state that he's found Trelawney in and by his own lust for catching Malfoy in the act. It is completely understandable. And yet it is also a terrible, terrible shame. One of the many laments that Harry will carry with him for some time. He tells her, well, uh, funny that, I'm going to the headmasters right now. Would you like to come along? Her joy at being in his presence is actually a bit touching. I miss having you in my classes, Harry, she said soulfully as they set off together. You were never much of a seer, but you were a wonderful object. Harry, of course, loathed being her object, despised how she made him feel doomed again and again, (laughs) and on stage in Every lesson. It's just kind of wears on you after a while when your teacher is constantly predicting your death. (laughs) That can kind of get old. But he, of course, gave her a purpose. He was her muse. In her manufactured ways and in ways she doesn't even know or understand, their fates are intertwined. And it's sort of agonizing to think as they walk down this hall how blind they both are to the extent of their shared history and future. Harry is about to learn a great deal more as she begins to bemoan, quote, the nags refusal to take her gift seriously. And it's really unkind the way she terrible constantly referring to centaurs in general. She asks if Dumbledore would have let her stay at the school this long if she did not truly possess the sight. And Harry mumbles his reply. He knows the truth. The Dumbledore keeps the prophecy issuer here to protect her from the intrusion Voldemort would force upon her mind. Dumbledore cannot afford to have her fall into Voldemort's hands, but Harry doesn't know the full truth, the full context of that fateful night that Trelawney issued her prediction, has never known, because Dumbledore, even amid his proclamations of honesty at last, has never told him. Trelawney's about to change that. She tells Harry that Dumbledore called upon her in the hogshead. Bedbugs be damned. It's a tough look for the hogshead right there. Here's my question. Very tough look for the hogshead. You ready for this one? They can do magic. You can't magic away the bed bugs? Maybe the supposition is wizards are going to stay there so they can just do it themselves. 
Maybe. And it, I guess it feeds into the mystique, the aura of filth and squalor that Aberforth is clearly trying to cultivate. I just think it's like, yeah, like, what are we doing, guys? Just cast a spell, please. Like, scourgeify the place and let's, <laughs> can we just move on? Quite just incredibly lazy. <laughs> she says that initially she thought Dumbledore seemed disinclined toward her discipline. And then things changed when she began to feel odd. She chalks it up to not having eaten that day. Highly relatable moment. You know, who among us? Quote, and now Harry was paying attention properly for the first time, for he knew what had happened then. Only he doesn't, because real record scratch moment here from the tree. Quote, but then we were rudely interrupted by Severus Snape. ba 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 A truly shocking moment the first time you read it. She explains that the barman, Dumbledore's brother Aberforth, as we will learn, caught Snape listening at the door. And she thinks that he was eavesdropping on her interview, hoping as a fellow Hogwarts applicant for tips. Of course, he was actually spying on Dumbledore for Voldemort, his master at the time. And she pauses in this tale only when she realizes that Harry has fallen behind, rooted to the ground by what he has just heard. Quote, this is heavy. Perhaps his face was white to make her look so concerned and frightened. Harry was standing stock still as waves of shock crashed over him, wave after wave, obliterating everything except the information that had been kept from him for so long. It was Snape who had overheard the prophecy. It was Snape who had carried the news of the prophecy to Voldemort. Snape and Peter Pettigrew together had sent Voldemort hunting after Lily and James and their son. Nothing else mattered to Harry just now. He tells her aggressively, frighteningly, to stay mm-hmm. put. And he runs to Dumbledore, ready to confront him for keeping this great secret. Keeping it, even after telling Harry in Order of the Phoenix, quote, I am going to tell you everything. Keeping it, even after telling Harry as their private lessons commenced in Half-Blood Prince, that it was time at last for Harry to be given certain information that Dumbledore had not shared with him at the end of the prior year. Dumbledore said at the time, quote, I told you everything I know. From this point forth, we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. But Snape's role in the prophecy isn't guesswork. It's real. It's tangible. It's fact. Fact that even before confronting Dumbledore, as Harry is about to do, Harry knows Dumbledore witnessed firsthand because he knows Dumbledore's role in hearing the prophecy. Learning to trust Dumbledore again after what Dumbledore's withholding cost in order came amazingly naturally, mm-hmm. easily for Harry. The product of his undying desire to believe that Dumbledore really is in command, really is keeping everyone safe. This moment calls Harry's faith and resiliency fully into question, pulls his trust in Dumbledore right back into the darkness. He pounds on the headmaster's door, and before Harry can speak, Dumbledore, traveling cloak in hand, says, well, Harry, I promised you that you could come with me. And Harry can't initially grasp what he's on about, Trelawney's Snape reveal has cast everything, even Dumbledore's note in the Horcrux possibility from his mind. But he slowly figures it out. You found one. You found a Horcrux. I believe so. Harry's emotions are at war with each other. From the book, rage and resentment fought shock and excitement. For several moments, Harry could not speak. Dumbledore reads this as 
trepidation. Mm-hmm. It is natural to be afraid, says Dumbledore, perceiving Harry's silence tenderly as justifiable fear. Harry insists that he isn't afraid. And for now, that's true. He asks Dumbledore where and what the Horcrux is, which Dumbledore doesn't know yet. Where, however, he does from the book. I believe it to be hidden in a cave on the coast many miles from here, a cave I've been trying to locate for a very long time, the cave in which Tom Riddle once terrorized two children from his orphanage on their annual trip. You remember? Now, he doesn't know which protections are in place or anything that awaits, but he knows that it certainly will be dangerous. And he warns Harry that despite his promise that he could come, Harry needs to understand the perils that await. He's giving him an out here, but Harry doesn't consider taking it. I'm coming, he says. He'd never say no to something like this. Never content himself to sit idly by while someone else, even someone as great as Dumbledore, Mm -hmm. risked himself to fight Harry's war. But his fury at Snape has also left him feeling even more reckless than usual. High bar. Which is no way to go into battle. Dumbledore can see right away that Harry isn't right. What has happened to you? Nothing. What has upset you? I'm not upset. Harry, you were never a good Occlemans. Man. But Dumbledore doesn't need to use legitimacy here. He knows Harry well enough to read the truth of Harry's pain on his face, to see the darkness stealing over him, poisoning him as the seconds tick away. Hearing the word... Occlemans triggers Harry. He associates the term, of course, with Snape. Snape, he said very loudly, and Fox gave a soft squawk behind them. Snape's what's happened. He told Voldemort about the prophecy. It was him. He listened outside the door. Trelawney told me. Dumbledore is silent as Harry observes him, his face appearing to whiten. He has chosen deliberately to keep this information from Harry and knowing that this part of his carefully curated plan, his puppeteering, has fallen out of his control, not only at last, but in such a crucial moment, on the brink of hopefully finding another Horcrux, on the brink of his own demise and the role that he knows Snape will play in it, that is a crushing blow for Dumbledore. The chess game imagery throughout this series is not accidental. Dumbledore has been playing the highest stakes game of all, on a board that only he can fully see, coldly at times, brilliantly, and ultimately compassionately in others. And one of his pieces just moved without him telling it to. He asked Harry when he heard this, and as Harry answers, saying just now, he loses his ability to master himself, shouting, just as he had done in the headmaster's office last year, ruled by his rage and sense of betrayal above all. And you let him teach here, he shouts, and he told Voldemort to go after my mom and dad. Harry's pacing at war with himself from the book. He wanted to tell him that he was a foolish old man for trusting Snape, but he was terrified that Dumbledore would not take him along unless he mastered his anger. Dumbledore asks him quietly to please listen, asking Harry not to interrupt him when Harry pushes back against Dumbledore's initial attempt to pronounce that Snape made a terrible mistake. Tells Harry that Snape was still in Voldemort's employ when he heard what he heard and that, quote, Naturally, he hastened to tell his master what he had heard, for it concerned his master most deeply. But he did not know. He had no possible way of knowing which boy Voldemort would hunt from then onward, or that the parents he would destroy in his murderous quest were people that Professor Snape knew, that they were your mother and father. And there's a lot to parse here. Let's start with the subtext of what Dumbledore is saying, which is that on some level, what Snape did was a mistake, not because it led Voldemort to murdering, period, but because it led to him murdering Harry's parents, who mm-hmm. were people that he knew. Mm-hmm. Would it have been okay, therefore, if it had been the Longbottoms, say, or nameless strangers who Snape did not know? 
Now, of course, that's not what Dumbledore really thinks. Right. He knows he can't appeal to Harry's reason here, so he must appeal to his heart mm-hmm. by focusing on his parents. But it's worth pointing out because the truth, of course, is that while Dumbledore might not actually feel the way his words indicate, Snape actually does. Yes. Snape does. Yes. Snape loved Lily. That's what makes the difference here. Would he ever have repented if Lily had not died? Would he ever have turned toward the light if his love had not been one of the people that was killed? Think of the revulsion that Dumbledore felt for Snape when in the memory that we'll see in The Prince's Tale and Hal, Snape admits that he asked Voldemort to spare Lily in exchange for her son. You disgust me, Dumbledore said to Snape in that moment, and he felt that disgust fully. Yes. Yet what he's saying here in an effort to assuage Harry is a cousin of that idea, a weighing of the moral scales based not on what, but on the whom. And of course, the whom is the key. Snape's love for Lily is what drove him to Dumbledore's side and led him to commit his life to serving Dumbledore and protecting Harry. And in the course of that repentance, Snape and Dumbledore moved beyond that disgust, not only to acceptance and eventually camaraderie, but to real trust, or at least Dumbledore's carefully managed version of it. Dumbledore believes in Snape because he believes in the power of love, truly, fully. He believes that love can lead Harry to victory over Voldemort. He believes that love changed his own life, and he believes that it is solely responsible for pulling Snape out of the darkness. But even in this moment of crisis, with Harry's trust shattered anew, on the edge of a perilous journey into the dark, not only of night, but of Voldemort's soul, Dumbledore does not tell Harry any of this. Quote, you have no idea of the remorse Professor Snape felt when he realized how Lord Voldemort had interpreted the prophecy, Harry. I believe it to be the greatest regret of his life and the reason that he returned. He says believes, but he knows. Mm -hmm. And when Harry pushes, noting rightly, smartly, wisely that Snape is a very good Occlumens, who's either fooling Dumbledore or Voldemort. You know, again, we often critique Harry for his blinders to Snape. It's a great point. point. It's a very good point. Dumbledore says, I am sure. I trust Severus Snape completely. These words, this moment, will tear at Harry's heart and soul after he witnesses Snape kill Dumbledore atop the tower, enveloping him in what feels like an inescapable gloom. But right before those words, Dumbledore is described thusly, quote, Dumbledore did not speak for a moment. He looked as though he was trying to make up his mind about something. Trying to make up his mind, surely, about whether to finally tell Harry why he trusts Snape. That Snape loved Lily and devoted his life to trying to avenge her death and protect the son who has her eyes. As we will learn in Hallows, he has sworn to Snape that he will never reveal the best of him, will never reveal Snape's promise. And he is worried on a practical level, too, about Voldemort's ability as a legilimens. In Hallows, we will see that he says, of Snape, actually, in fending off a very Harry-esque request from Snape for more information, that, quote, I prefer not to put all of my secrets in one basket, particularly not a basket that spends so much time dangling on the arm of Lord Voldemort. The same logic, of course, applies in reverse. Harry's mind is always at risk of being breached. Sharing this truth with him is a practical risk that Dumbledore does not think he can take. Certainly not this close to the death that he knows is coming and Snape's enhanced post-assassination standing in Voldemort's mind. Knowing none of this, Harry, driven by his anger, finally goes too far. You're leaving the school tonight, and I'll bet you haven't even considered that Snape and Malfoy might decide to. When Dumbledore asks what exactly it is that Harry thinks they're doing, Harry says again, rightly, that Draco mended something dangerous in the Room of Requirement. 
But then he goes too far. He's fixed it at last, and you're about to just walk out of the school without enough, said Dumbledore. man. He said it quite calmly, and yet Harry fell silent at once. He knew that he had crossed some invisible line. And this is a direct shot at something Dumbledore cares very much about, which is his responsibility to the school and to his students. Yes. Do you think that I have once left the school unprotected during my absences this year? I have not. There's no safer place, Harry. Tonight, when I leave, there will again be additional protection in place. Please do not suggest that I do not take the safety of my students seriously, (sighs) Harry. Man, that is a tough moment. It's a very tough moment. Really tough. And we will see that Dumbledore has protections in place. Members of the Order are on the grounds as we speak, and yet it will not be enough. Draco will infiltrate the school. Dumbledore's plan with Snape, his own acceptance of his own fate, doesn't change the peril the rest of the school will be in because of Malfoy's plan. Death Eaters on the grounds. That is something that cannot be controlled. As with Sirius's death in order, there's so much blame to go around here and so much that could have gone differently if everyone had told the truth and put their stubbornness and biases aside. They've wounded each other here, casting shade over their bond, shadow over what they need to now set out to do. But they also both know through their heat and their resentment that this is what Voldemort wants. They can't be divided now. They must push through and unite. Dumbledore ends it there, saying he will not discuss the matter further, and asking Harry one more time, if he wants to join him tonight, that Harry's pestilence and rudeness haven't led to this offer being revoked is a testament both to Dumbledore's belief in Harry and affection for him, and also, again, to Dumbledore's pragmatism. He knows that he's on borrowed time. Doing this with Harry will better position Harry to then do it alone. Harry says, yes, he wants to go, and then Dumbledore sets the conditions. I take you with me he says, on one condition, that you obey any command I might give you at once and without question. Harry consents, and the ensuing exchange clarifies the stakes really more starkly than anything has to this point. Be sure to understand me, Harry, Dumbledore says. I mean that you must follow even such orders as run, hide, or go back. Do I have your word? I, yes, of course. If I tell you to hide, Dumbledore continues, you will do so? Yes. If I tell you to flee, you will obey? Yes. This is... If I tell you to leave me and save yourself, you will do as I tell you. I... Harry? They looked at each other for a moment. Yes, sir, Harry says. Dumbledore knows. Not the specific form. Mm -hmm. But he knows, unambiguously, that hell awaits. He knows that death might await, too. And he knows that the darkness might claim him, but he needs to ensure that it doesn't claim Harry as well. He sends Harry to get his invisibility cloak, telling him to meet him in the entrance hall in five minutes. And Harry runs, his mind, quote, oddly clear all of a sudden. He gives Ron and Hermione the Marauder's Map and his remaining Felix, telling them what just transpired and instructing them to monitor Snape and Malfoy alike and to split the potion between themselves and Ginny. Mm Mm-hmm and be ready to fight. He asks them to use the old Dumbledore's army coins to try and recruit more bodies to the cause. He tells them that Snape will know what Dumbledore's protections are. Again, actually a good note if Snape really had been bad and tells them to say goodbye to Ginny for him. Oh, that's... Truly tough moment with a real feeling of finality in the air and Hermione implores Harry to take the potion instead, saying, who knows what you're going to be facing. But Harry has never been one to put himself in front of others. He can only go on 
knowing that he's done everything in his power to protect his friends, to try to save them. His ultimate sacrifice is still one book, one year away, but Harry's entire life has been defined by a series of sacrifices, a series of moments and choices where he has refused to let the creeping darkness rule him, where he looks into it and pushes his way through, his friendship and love serving as a shield. I'll be fine, he says. I'll be with Dumbledore. I want to know you lot are okay. And this is heart-wrenching, not only because he means it so sincerely, but because Harry will be the one who has to be strong for Dumbledore in the end. And he leaves Ron and Hermione in shock and awe as he runs to Dumbledore, who tells him to put on his cloak so that it'll look like Dumbledore is heading into Hogsmeade alone for a drink, a useful diversion. This is one of these perfect JKR paragraphs. Quote, They made their way down the drive in the gathering twilight. The air was full of the smells of warm grass, lake water, and wood smoke from Hagrid's cabin. It was difficult to believe that they were heading for anything dangerous or frightening. (sighs) Harry reminds Dumbledore that he doesn't have his apparition license. Dumbledore says he'll guide him, perfectly setting up the moment when Harry will have to guide him instead. And in front of the hogshead, they spin on the spot. Quote, And then, just when he thought he must suffocate, the invisible band seemed to burst open, and he was standing in cool darkness, breathing in lungfuls of fresh, salty air. (sighs) This book is good. It's really good. (laughs) Chapter 26, The Cave. An all-timer. An all-time chapter. Personally, my favorite chapter in the series. The cave and its impenetrable darkness captured the imagination of young Tom Riddle, a troubled orphan who felt keenly that he was special, who knew in his bones that nature held him separate from his peers and indeed from the rest of the world. Tom found in the cave a place where he could discover and be himself, a private place. And we can assume the first thing that Tom Riddle wanted to do in that dark isolation was hurt people. Facing the darkness within the cave, he found in it a reflection of the darkness inside of himself. We talk often about choice and its importance in this story, and we've noted the parallels many times between Voldemort and Harry. Both are orphans. Both came from tragic backgrounds. Both were plucked from what felt like anonymous despair by the intervention of magic, and both experienced the happiest years of their lives at Hogwarts. But one became the Dark Lord and the other a hero, and their choices, their differing responses to the obstacles and opportunities which life placed in their way largely determine those paths. Think of Harry's childhood with the Dursleys and those lonely years spent in the dank spider-filled cupboard under the stairs, his own cave, if you will. Yes. Harry longed to escape the dark loneliness to find friends and a family. Voldemort embraced that solitude, sought out that darkness. He found it first in this cave and sought to make this place his own. Harry has faced Voldemort and his minions and the darkness associated with them many times. In Godric's Hollow as an infant, in Hogwarts dungeons, in the Chamber of Secrets, in the Roots of the Whomping Willow, in the graveyard, in Little Hangleton, in his own mind. Harry has been inside Voldemort's mind, too. Seen through the Dark Lord's eyes as he's tortured and killed, felt his murderous anger. The link between Harry and Voldemort is intimate, by definition. Right. But so, in a different way, is the cave. Is them entering this cave. This is the Dark Lord's place. You could say that his relationship with the cave is perhaps the longest in his life, the longest running one in his life. The cave and the darkness within, 
with only the undead eyes and the unquestioning minds of the lifeless and fury to witness his quest for eternal power and immortality. This is his dream for the world, wrought in miniature. What other kinds of evil has he explored within this darkness? I already have chills. Harry breathes in the salt air, listens to the crashing waves, taking in the scene around him. He and Dumbledore have arrived on an outcrop of rock that long ago broke away from the main cliff. And as he looks around at the churning sea, Harry thinks, quote, it was a bleak, harsh view, the sea and the rock unrelieved by any tree or sweep of grass or sand. A fitting setting for a bleak, harsh man to hide away a sliver of his former humanity. Dumbledore asks Harry what he thinks of the scene before him. Quote, he might have been asking Harry's opinion on whether it was a good site for a picnic. Harry and Dumbledore have arrived together at one of the defining moments of their lives. They're grains of sand in the wind, readying to try to tame nature and the unnatural alike. And yet this conversational, almost routine query from Dumbledore grounds them. They're together. And they're going to figure it out together, as they have so many things before. Harry can't believe that anyone would consider this wild seaside landscape a fitting place to take children. There's a village close by, Dumbledore tells him, from which the orphans could take in the air and gaze upon the waves. Quote, No, I think it was only ever Tom Riddle and his youthful victims who visited this spot. He says that only exceptionally adept muggle mountaineers could reach this rock, and no boats can approach the cliffs due to the fierceness of the water. Quote, I imagine that Riddle climbed down. Magic would have served better than ropes. And he brought two small children with him, probably for the pleasure of terrorizing them. Think about this. The orphanage brought the children here to inject a little hope and life into their days, to show them how big the world really could be. And this is what Tom Riddle did in response to that awakening. These are the possibilities that he chose to unlock once he realized he held a special kind of key. Dumbledore says that the journey alone would have terrorized the small children, and now it's time for him and Harry to make that same journey. Quote, Harry looked up at the cliff again and felt goosebumps. Using rough-hewn footholds, they climb down the face of the rock to the boulders below and gaze across to a fissure in the rock face, dark water swirling with him. Harry takes off his invisibility cloak and they swim, Dumbledore showing remarkable agility for a man his age. They go through the crack in the rock into a dark tunnel which burrows deep into the cliff. Harry can tell that the water would fill it at high tide. This is a place that few could ever see, let alone reach. They swim through the tunnel, which eventually opens into a cave. Harry emerges into the freezing air, shivering, to find Dumbledore turning on the spot in the center of the cave. Wand held high. Yes, this is the place, said Dumbledore. How can you tell? Harry spoke in a whisper. This is one of my favorite lines in the entire series. Mm -hmm. It has known magic, said Dumbledore simply. This is a spine-tingling statement, a testament to the traces that magic leaves and the web in which it ensnares all who partake in it and the knowledge that Dumbledore possesses to be able to identify it here. When we saw Dumbledore and Voldemort duel in the Ministry in Order of the Phoenix, we understood properly, in a way that we really never fully had before, what rare gifts separated the two of them as great wizards. It was a visceral, palpable experience. This right here is a different kind of insight, but just as important. A gentle, subtle glimpse into the uncommon abilities that allowed Voldemort to bend this place to his will and then allow Dumbledore to discover its secrets. Voldemort wants to divide. Dumbledore wants to unite. 
Magic is the thread that binds them all, pulled from and born back into the very fabric of the world around them. From the book, Harry could not tell whether the shivers he was experiencing were due to his spine, deep coldness, or to the same awareness of enchantments. Harry has these abilities too. In some ways, they're still nascent. In some ways, they'll be birthed here in the cave, just as Tom Riddle's were. Though he hasn't yet acknowledged it to himself, those shivers are the beginning of something else too, fear. Harry is aware that Dumbledore is seeing things that he cannot see, detecting things he cannot detect. He observes the headmaster at work, a quiet witness, marveling at the display, just as we are. From the book again, this is merely the antechamber, the entrance hall, said Dumbledore after a moment or two. We need to penetrate the inner place. Now it is Lord Voldemort's obstacles that stand in our way rather than those nature made. The inner place, the dark secret center. Dumbledore circles the cave twice, caressing the wall as he moves. From the book, muttering words in a strange tongue that Harry did not understand. This is magic as Harry has never seen it. A lesson not spoken but observed. At last, Dumbledore identifies the concealed entrance. He says, here, we go on through here. This is the entrance to Voldemort's inner sanctum. From the book again, Harry did not ask how Dumbledore knew. He had never seen a wizard work things out like this, simply by looking and touching. But Harry had long since learned that bangs and smoke were more often the marks of ineptitude than expertise. And this is one of those moments laden in hindsight with regret. Harry's watching in reverence and also with sincere curiosity. But what if he had asked, what's happening here? What are you doing? What if Dumbledore had just told him how much better positioned would he have been For what was to come, Dumbledore points his wand at the patch of wall and an archway appears. For a moment, Fellowship of the Rings fans will think of Tolkien and the doors of Durin in this moment, but Voldemort is not a, quote, speak friend and enter kind Uh of guy. And after pausing to magically dry the frigid Harry, a tender and important moment that paints Harry as a child and Dumbledore again as a guardian, as starkly as anything since Harry was literally a baby in his arms, he uncovers the method of entrance. A blood price must be paid. Oh, surely not, says Dumbledore. So crude. Even still, he has the capacity to be surprised by Voldemort's vileness because even still he wants to believe the best in people. He gave up on Tom Riddle in his office all those years ago, but he never gives up on the idea of humanity winning out in the end. The discovery is yet another violation of those ideals, another reminder of how much of himself Voldemort has willingly cast aside, another disappointment. From the book, Voldemort has fallen short of the standards Dumbledore expected. As Dumbledore notes, this speaks to the Dark Lord's blind spots. Voldemort is incredibly powerful, and his skill is nearly without match. But his interests are highly specific, and his mind is as closed to outside ideas as the cave is to light. From the book again, the idea, as I'm sure you will have gathered, Dumbledore says to Harry, is that your enemy must weaken him or herself to enter. Once again, Lord Voldemort fails to grasp that there are much more terrible things than physical injury. Because, of course, to him, there aren't. Death is the enemy. But not in the way that it is for Beric or Jon Snow or Dumbledore or Harry. For those men, death is something to shield others from, even at the cost of walking toward it oneself. To greet it, as in the tale of the three brothers, as an old friend, an equal. For Voldemort, it is merely something to conquer, another foe to beat, another test to prove himself superior. He loves nothing and no one but himself. How then could he ever fear losing anything but himself? Dumbledore and Harry understand this about him. They understand that it is the key to his undoing and to Harry's eventual victory. But that victory will not be easy. And here we and Harry start to stare into what Voldemort's darkness really looks like Mm -hmm. using a short knife that reminds Harry of one in his potions kit. 
Albus slices his arm through Harry's protestations, spattering the rock with his blood. And the entrance reveals itself, the blood melting away the rock beneath the now-lasting archway. Dumbledore says, your blood is worth more than mine. A nod to everything that Dumbledore has come to believe, has come to discover about Harry's true purpose. Remember, the gleam in Dumbledore's eye when he learned that Voldemort had taken Harry's blood to resurrect himself in the graveyard. Think of what Dumbledore will tell Harry in King's Cross and Deathly Hallows about the greed that blinded Voldemort as he took Lily's sacrifice into himself, thereby tethering Harry to life as long as Voldemort lived too. Just as the literal rock and air of the cave are suffused with unmistakable magic, so too are these moments with Harry and Dumbledore imbued with clues about Harry's ultimate choice. Dumbledore leads Harry inside. From the book, they were standing on the edge of a great black lake, so vast that Harry could not make out the distant banks, in a cavern so high that the ceiling too was out of sight. A misty greenish light shone far away in what looked like the middle of the lake. It was reflected in the completely still water below. The greenish glow and the light from the two wands were the only thing that broke the otherwise velvety blackness, though their rays did not penetrate as far as Harry would have expected. The darkness was somehow denser than normal darkness. This is a frightening sight precisely because of all that cannot be seen. Yes. That the only light far away in the center of the lake comes from what we'll soon learn are the magical safeguards which Voldemort put in place to guard a piece of his torn soul is perverse. By choosing this place and protecting it so extensively, Voldemort seeks to keep intruders away. However, the Dark Lord also wants to draw in those who have made it this far. Right. Dumbledore tells Harry to be careful not to step in the water. He says, stay close to me, and leads Harry around the perimeter of the lake. Harry's unnerved by the silence in the space. He asks Dumbledore if he believes the Horcrux is here, and Dumbledore says that he's sure it is. But how to get it? Harry suggests a summoning charm. He's worried it'll sound silly, but he's also, quote, much keener than he was prepared to admit on getting out of this place as soon as possible. Dumbledore doesn't mock him. Certainly we could, said Dumbledore, stopping so suddenly that Harry almost walked into him. Why don't you do it? Harry has spent every moment since Voldemort's return and much of the time before that wanting to understand just what is happening, what's going on. His life, after all, is the one on the line. He's the one constantly enmeshed in Voldemort's schemes and the target of his ire. Yes, Harry has consistently been kept out of information which directly affects him. That began to change last year in The Lost Prophecy, and it's really changed this year. Dumbledore is sharing information with Harry. Not the complete picture, to be sure, but still. And just as important, he's asking for Harry's opinion. And, as this excursion shows, directly involving him. He wants Harry to feel invested, to test his own instincts and powers, yes. to learn not only to ask for understanding, but to seek it on his own. Harry casts... Akio Horcrux, and the glow at the center of the lake doesn't move, but something truly terrible in the water does, a pale something that erupts from the water and crashes back below, sending Harry leaping backward onto the rock. His heart, quote, thundering as he asks Dumbledore what that was. Do you remember how your heart was pounding yes, when you were reading like, this for the first time? I can feel it in my chest. It's such a tonal, and it's of a piece, obviously, with the story writ large, but it's such a tonal shift because this is really an invasion of Voldemort's personal space. This is this feels dark in a way that is truly mesmerizing. It's horror. Yeah. It's horror, and yet it is, in many ways, the series in miniature. Yes. The essence of the It's themes. Harry and Dumbledore against the darkness, and yes. what if one of them should fall? What then? Just the vulnerability of everything is incredible. And the part about it that is truly incredible just from a suspense point of view is, 
Voldemort's not there, but he's there. Oh, all around them. In he's, every ripple of the water not, and every glow of the green light. He's not physically there, but he's just there. And that is so much of the character of the series, you know, because he doesn't show up physically in the full body form until Goblet. But you feel him all throughout the series, and that's it. That's concentrated feeling. He's not in the cave, but he's in the cave. He's, he's everywhere all around you. That's a great point. Dumbledore tells Harry that it is something, quote, ready to respond should they go for the Horcrux. Slowly, they're peeling back the layers of the soul-guarding magical lamor that Voldemort has crafted. And Harry, of course, doesn't realize how little time he has left with Albus. The headmaster, knowing that his end is nearing, is using his every action and utterance as an opportunity to teach. And as Harry looks back at the water where, quote, the ripples had vanished unnaturally fast, his heart still pounding, Dumbledore says, that was a very good idea, Harry. Much the simplest way of finding out what we are facing. Dumbledore, gesturing at the green glow in the distance, tells Harry that he thinks that's where the Horcrux is. Quote, I love this part. Harry did not say anything. His thoughts were all of water monsters, of giant serpents, of demons, kelpies, and sprites. Remember the exchange that Ned and Bran share in A Game of Thrones? Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? Bran asks his father. I'm going to cry. <laughs> that is the only time a man can be brave, Ned tells him. And Harry is so afraid here. You know, he told Dumbledore when they were setting out that he wasn't afraid, and he's always telling himself that he isn't, and here he can't help it. But there's no shame in that. It is, in fact, a source of his strength, because being afraid means being human. And being human means possessing the capacity for love and hope. Harry finds his courage in his fear, and there's a tenderness, a reminder here, too, of how very young Harry still is, how very heavy his burdens are. They continue walking. And then Dumbledore stops so suddenly that Harry actually does walk into him. And subtle moments like this are so important because they remind us of how used Dumbledore is to operating alone. Yeah. How miraculous his bond with Harry really is. Dumbledore has found something, though Harry can't make out what it could be. Dumbledore is moving his hand through the very air. And as he moves toward the edge of the water, his hand closes on something that Harry can't see. And then he taps the hand with his other hand, with his wand. And a thick, coppery green chain appears, running through his closed fist down into the water. Dumbledore taps the chain, and it begins to drag something through the water toward the shore. It is a ghostly green, impossibly small boat. Harry gasps when he sees it and asks Dumbledore how he knew it was there. And Dumbledore says, magic always leaves traces. And here it is again, that idea. I love this idea. That shared energy, that eternal footprint that magic rots. Sometimes very distinctive traces, Dumbledore continues. I taught Tom Riddle. I know his style. These are the same traces that allowed Dumbledore to find this location in the first place, then to know which part of the wall hid the entrance, and then to detect the nature of that entrance's concealment. It is endlessly fascinating to think of magic in this way, as something tactile, something that was experience mm -hmm. and an open heart and an open mind. A sorcerer can not just learn to work, but to feel. It is also deeply unsettling to consider how unpleasant, how repellent, these traces of Voldemort's magic must feel to Dumbledore in this moment. And it's also fascinating to consider that line 
about Dumbledore serving as Tom's teacher, another reminder of their shared history, the ties that bind, the roads that we walk together until our choices set us down paths of our own. Harry is thinking of none of this, though. He is rightly concerned about the boat. Yes. It looks fucking small. (laughs) He asks Dumbledore if it's safe, and Dumbledore says yes. Should the Dark Lord ever have wished to visit his Horcrux, the headmaster tells Harry, he would have needed a way to cross the lake without rousing the defenses he had put in place. What we'll soon realize are his inferior. At some point, Dumbledore says, those defenders will realize that they aren't Voldemort from the book. Thus far, however, we have done well. They have let them take the boat. Why, Harry asks from the book again, Voldemort would have been reasonably confident that none but a very great wizard would have been able to find the boat. Here again, we see Voldemort's hubris at play. Dumbledore and Harry are great wizards. It's true. It took uncommon skill to learn about his horcruxes and find this place. But this speaks to his larger tendency to dismiss and discount, to believe that so few others would ever possess his knowledge. Mm -hmm. And what's more, as Dumbledore notes, More obstacles wait ahead, and Voldemort surely thought only he would be able to penetrate those, another mistake born of his hubris. At this point, Harry notices how very small the boat is. This boat is not a normal craft, bound strictly by the laws of physics. From the book, Voldemort will not have cared about the weight, but about the amount of magical power that crossed the lake. I rather think an enchantment will have been placed upon this boat so that only one wizard at a time will be able to sail in it. Incredible. Another of Voldemort's trademark miscalculations, this time about the importance of strength. Yes. And an opportunity for Dumbledore again to teach. Since only an accomplished magical being could have discovered the boat, or indeed accessed the cave, Voldemort would have sought to ensure that only one of those beings could ride in the boat at any one time. From the book, I do not think you will count, Harry. You are underage and unqualified. Voldemort will never have expected a 16-year-old to reach this place. I think it unlikely that your powers will register compared to mine. Now, this seems like a kind of a burn from Dumbledore, and Harry, for a moment, does take it that way, his morale sinking further. But Dumbledore rallies his spirits by pointing out how foolish, how tragically myopic this belief is. He says, Voldemort's mistake, Harry, Voldemort's mistake. Age is foolish and forgetful when it underestimates youth. This harkens back to Dumbledore's words about himself in order when he said to Harry, you cannot know how age thinks and feels, but old men are guilty if they forget what it was to be young. Dumbledore has grown and changed in a way that Voldemort never could because he never wanted to. It's also a great meta commentary on the critique of the series that it's for kids mm-hmm. from JK directly to you saying, I know how you feel. That's why this story works. Absolutely. We will learn at Hallows in one of the most harrowing moments in the entire series about how Voldemort used Creature in the cave, viewing the house elf just as Dumbledore is now explaining that Voldemort would view an underage wizard like Harry as irrelevant beneath his consideration. Creature proved him wrong, and Harry will too, though he doesn't know it yet. Voldemort's dismissal of things that he considers weak has already cost him the lock at Horcrux years ago. Voldemort borrowed Creature from Regulus, using the house elf to drink the potion in the basin so that he could place the locket there. The Dark Lord then left Creature to die, not understanding, not caring perhaps, or bothering to find out that house elves have powerful magic of their own and could apparate into places that wizards and witches can't. Creature would later lead Regulus back to the cave so that Sirius' baby brother could steal the locket and replace it with a fake. They climb into the boat. Dumbledore reminding Harry not to touch the water, and the craft immediately sets sail for the green glow. Quote, it moved without their help. Haunting. The cave and the lake at houses are so vast that soon Harry can't even see the walls of the cavern. Quote, they might have been at sea, except that there were no waves. Descriptions like that are so 
chilling. Harry looks down at the black surface of the water and sees a hand. And then a full dead person hovering face up just beneath the surface. There are bodies in here, said Harry. Mm. The description reads thusly, and his voice sounded much higher than usual (laughs) and most unlike his own. Remember, bravery comes from fear. One of those corpses is what moved when Harry attempted the summoning charm. Should Harry and Dumbledore manage to actually acquire the Horcrux as they hope, those cadavers, those in fury, will react violently to protect Voldemort's prize. Dumbledore is sure of this. But don't worry about that now, Harry, my guy. First things first. (laughs) And then we get this iconic quote from Dumbledore. There is nothing to be feared from a body, Harry, any more than there is anything to be feared from the darkness. Lord Voldemort, who of course secretly fears both, disagrees. But once again, he reveals his own lack of wisdom. It is the unknown we fear when we look upon death and darkness. Nothing more. This is a crucial insight from Dumbledore. Mm -hmm. Yes. It is counterintuitive to think of Voldemort as being afraid of darkness and death when he so clearly, so aggressively and actively traffics in both. But it also explains so much about his motives. We know that even as a boy, he could not believe that his mother was magical because, as Dumbledore said, she had succumbed to that shameful human weakness of death. We know that Voldemort has looked Dumbledore in the eyes and shouted at him, there is nothing worse than death. We know that he stood in the graveyard, boasting of going further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. We know that he devoted much of his life, not only to accruing power, but to working to conquer death. To conquer, in other words, the one thing that could link him to all other people, his own mortality. Mm-hmm. Voldemort so wishes to avoid death that he is willing, even eager, to mutilate his own soul in order to avoid it. He has no regard for his own humanity, only for the mastery that will lead him to move beyond that and what it represents. Concepts like love and friendship are beneath Voldemort's regard because he considers them not sources of strength, but causes of weakness. Anything that isn't important to him is, in his mind, not important, full stop. Yes. And the reverse also holds. Because Voldemort fears death and darkness, so he must reason. Everyone else must too. The darkness, ironically, has made him blind. Dumbledore and Harry, of course, know better. Harry, most of all. He's the one who's able to resist the pull of the hallows, to choose not to seek and unite them to attempt to master death as even Dumbledore wanted to, but instead to destroy Voldemort's tethers to an unnatural form of life. When Harry uses the Resurrection Stone in Deathly Hallows, it is not to try to cheat death. It is to help him, just like the third Peveril brother, greet death willingly, not running from his fear, but learning to examine and understand it even to embrace it, buoyed by love that lights his way through the dark. Dumbledore tells Harry, who's deeply afraid of what the bodies will do, that, quote, like many creatures that dwell in cold and darkness, they fear light and warmth, which we shall therefore call to our aid should the need arise. Fire, Harry. Harry looks toward the greenish glow from the book again. He cannot pretend now that he was not scared. He finds himself thinking of Ron and Hermione and Ginny. 
from the booking, and he suddenly wished he had said a better goodbye to them. This is so sad. Eventually, the boat comes ashore on a small island of smooth rock in the center of the lake. They can now see the source of the eerie green glow, a basin, quote, rather like the pensive, atop a stone pedestal. The cover art that readers obsessed over for months before the book's release. I had this pinned up in my dorm room. From the book, Dumbledore approached the basin and Harry followed. Side by side, they looked down into it. The basin was full of an emerald liquid emitting that phosphorescent glow. What is it? Asked Harry quietly. I'm not sure, said Dumbledore. Something more worrisome than blood and bodies, however. Oh, good! (sighs) Fantastic. Dumbledore rolls up his sleeve and attempts to plunge his fucked up hand into the basin, which is smart. Harry is alarmed, but Voldemort's enchantments keep Dumbledore from being able to come within an inch of touching the liquid, as Dumbledore surely suspected they would. Harry tries also. He can't touch the potion either. Dumbledore makes complicated wand movements and murmurs to the basin. You think the Horcrux is in there, sir? Harry asks. Oh, yes, Dumbledore says. But how to reach it? This potion cannot be penetrated by hand, vanished, parted, scooped up, or siphoned away, nor can it be transfigured, charmed, or otherwise made to change its nature. Dumbledore conjures a crystal goblet from thin air. I can only conclude that this potion is supposed to be drunk. I was forever being like, what? I remember the the hair standing up on my neck. Harry, who was recently as two chapters ago, was ready to cast unknown spells on his classmates that he found in a mysterious book. It's like, hold up. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) You're you're just going to drink this stuff? Gonna drink uh, the green potion that Voldemort created and left at the middle of the lake in the secret cave where he used to torture people. That can't be the idea. <laughs> yeah. Quote. But what if? What if it kills you? Harry asks. Great question. Oh, I doubt it would work like that," said Dumbledore easily. Lord Voldemort would not want to kill the person who reached this island. Harry needs to understand this idea. Yes. He needs this to be explained. Surely. Not even the ever-trusting Dumbledore, always so determined to see the best in people, believes that Tom Riddle at this point can be saved. Sir, this is Voldemort, where Harry starts to say, and Dumbledore stops him. I'm sorry, Harry. I should have said. He would not want to immediately (laughs) kill the person who reached this island. He would want to keep them alive long enough to find out how they managed to penetrate so far through his defenses, and most importantly of all, why they were so intent upon so insidious. It's actually brilliant and it is. very dark. Do not forget, Dumbledore continues, that Lord Voldemort believes that he alone knows about his horcruxes. Mm-hmm. Small comfort, maybe, but a truly brilliant insight into Voldemort's mind, into how he thinks and operates. Further proof of how well Dumbledore really knows his mark and the boy that he's firing at that mark as well. Voldemort believes himself superior not only to competition, but to mere detection. Mm -hmm. And yet, of course, he fears that competition fully. Why else would he have acted on the prophecy in the first place? He acts as though he's without equal because he wants to believe that that's so. But his fear is what drives him to try to make it so, often to his own detriment. Many people find their strength in these fears because processing the fear means overcoming them. But Voldemort never even tries to assess and understand them. He runs from the darkness, and in doing so, runs into it. So what does the potion do? Dumbly lays out his thinking. The liquid's effects are surely designed to keep the drinker from actually acquiring the Horcrux, of course. Remember, because of the magic-sensing boat, Voldemort believes that any intruder on the island would have to be acting alone. The potion might paralyze Dumbledore, he says. 
or inflict incredible pain or befuddle him so that he forgets why he's there in the first place. And if he were really alone, if he were, in other words, as Voldemort is, he would then fail. But he isn't alone. He has Harry. And so whatever the case may be, he says, once the potion takes effect, it will be up to Harry to make sure Dumbledore keeps going. He says, it will be your job to make sure I keep drinking, even if you have to tip the potion into my protesting mouth. You understand? Harry quite understandably box because this is scary, terrifying. Yes. He wonders if this alone is why he's there. Dumbledore reminds Harry of his promise. You swore, did you not, to follow any command I gave you? Yes, but I warned you, did I not, that there might be danger? Yes, said Harry. But, well then, said Dumbledore, shaking back his sleeves once more and raising the empty goblet, you have my orders. Harry asks, of course, why he can't drink the potion himself. And this question is the embodiment of what makes Harry heroic. Reckless yes. on occasion, yes, but heroic. His recklessness, you might argue, I certainly would argue, is inextricable from his heroism. Mm -hmm. Harry is not fearless, but he'd much rather it be him in danger than anybody else. Yes. Dumbledore, of course, will not be swayed. Because I am much older, much cleverer, and much less valuable, said Dumbledore. <laughs> he does not say why Harry is more valuable, that he is uh -huh. the final Horcrux, that he will have to sacrifice himself to truly beat Voldemort and save the others in the end. He asks Harry's promise, a seal, not only on this moment, but on all the moments to come. He says, once and for all, Harry, do I have your word that you will do all in your power to make me keep drinking? After a few more back and forths, Harry consents. <sighs> Dumbledore dips his goblet, which cuts through the potion as no other magic had. Your good health, Harry, he says, <sighs> and begins drinking. Here, Phineas. Can't deny Dumbledore's got style. Harry is terrified, gripping the basin for strength as he watches. And he asks how Dumbledore feels, but the headmaster shakes his head, his eyes closed as he drinks again. And on the fourth cup, things take a turn for the truly terrible. The headmaster staggers against the basin, eyes closed, breathing heavy. Dumbledore's face is twitching, quote, as though he was deeply asleep, mm. but dreaming a horrible dream. The goblet slipping from his grasp. And Harry stops the potion from spilling, in doing so beginning to perform his promised task. Professor, can you hear me? He repeated loudly, his voice echoing around the cavern. The passage continues. Dumbledore panted and then spoke in a voice Harry did not recognize. <sighs> for he had never heard Dumbledore frightened like this. I don't want, don't make me, Dumbledore is saying. This is harrowing. We have come to think of Dumbledore as all-powerful, wise, more capable than anyone. Imperfect, certainly. Yes. Fallible, certainly. But always able, always strong. He's like a mountain or a forest or some other natural wonder. It's impossible to imagine the landscape of Harry's world without him. And so seeing him like this, vulnerable, fearful, enfeebled, and senseless, is terrifying, not just in this moment, but existentially. Yes. Terrifying for the audience, too, because losing Albus would, and indeed does, shift the gravity of the story in immeasurable ways. And it's, of course, this way for Harry, too, because as much as he has struggled to convince Everyone in his life, including Dumbledore, that he should be involved in the plans to fight Voldemort right there on the front lines. He's not yet ready. He's not ready. To conquer whatever is capable of reducing a godlike being like Dumbledore to this state. He's not yet ready to brave the darkness alone. Harry doesn't know what to do as he stares into Dumbledore's familiar face and listens to his pleas. Don't like, want to stop. 
Harry, true to his word, forces Dumbledore to drink. From the book, hating himself, repulsed by what he was doing, Harry forced the goblet back toward Dumbledore's mouth and tipped it so that Dumbledore drank the remainder of the potion inside. This is an important moment for Harry, another lesson from Dumbledore, who was also often repulsed by himself and the choices that he had to make. Yes. Being a hero isn't always clean. It doesn't always feel good. Remember right. Dumbledore's words to the school after Cedric's death. If the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. This isn't easy for Harry, but it is right. It is what he promised he would do. I don't want to. I don't want to. Let me go. It's all right, Professor, said Harry, his hand shaking. It's all right. I'm here. Make it stop. Make it stop, moaned Dumbledore. Yes, yes, this'll make it stop, lied Harry. He tipped the contents of the goblet into Dumbledore's open mouth. Harry forces him to drink despite his pleas, despite his terrified cries. From the book again, Dumbledore screamed. The noise echoed all around the vast chamber, across the dead black water. Five goblets of potion. Harry's hands are shaking so badly he can barely scoop up the liquid. His courage carries a cost. As Harry scoops up the sixth goblet, the basin now half empty, he says to Dumbledore, quote, Nothing's happening to you. You're safe. It isn't real. I swear it isn't real. Take this now. Take this. This statement, this moment, is the dark underbelly of one of the series' defining lines, which Dumbledore will speak to Harry in King's Cross and Deathly Hallows. Of course it is happening inside your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean that it is not real? Harry is lying to Dumbledore here, not deliberately, not maliciously. He's doing it in order to help him, in order to try to give him the strength needed to push through. Because something is happening to Dumbledore. It is happening in his head, yes, but it's as real as anything in his life. More real, more painful than the slice of a knife on his arm or the threat lying in wait in the lake. The horrors in Dumbledore's past defined him, determined to this day what he values and prizes. They remind him why he's fighting. And after the next drink, he shakes uncontrollably, crying. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. Please make it stop. I know I did wrong. Oh, please make it stop, and I'll never, never again. We'll learn in Deathly Hallows that Dumbledore is reliving here the worst horrors of his life, the events that tore his family asunder, his sister Ariana's death, his brother's mutinous rage, his broken home, and behind it all, his lust for Grindelwald and the promise of power. Dumbledore, despite his godlike strength, is not actually a deity. Mm -hmm. He's a man. It's important. Flawed in all the way that other people are. He loved, and he got lost in that love, pulled into the darkness, and it cost him everything he held dear. But he did not give in to that despair. He did what he will tell Harry to do. What Harry will reflect on as he sits at Dumbledore's funeral at book's end. He fought and kept fighting. <sighs> When he found Gaunt's ring in the Resurrection Stone, even then, even after all he'd learned and fought for and grown to overcome, he gave in to the pull of temptation because he's imperfect, but all the more relatable and lovable as a result. He spent a lifetime trying and not always succeeding to honor what he told Harry back in Sorcerer's Stone. It does not do to dwell on dreams and forget to live. Mm -hmm. Here, though we don't understand it, we see how the darkness holds him, how it's never freed him from its grasp. Harry, utterly horrified by what he's witnessing, confused and afraid and repulsed by his own role in this unfolding misery, but also bound by his word, tells Dumbledore that the potion will indeed make whatever it mm. is stop. Goblin number seven. Quote, Dumbledore began to cower as though invisible torturers surrounded him. 
His flailing hand almost knocked the refill goblet from Harry's trembling hands as he moaned, don't hurt them, don't hurt them, please, please, it's all my fault, hurt me instead. Them, his family, his sister, who died because of his relationship with Grindelwald, his brother, who never really forgave him, even his mother, who died before that, but after committing her life to trying to protect the daughter, who we have come to believe was an obscurial, her magic pushed inward by her childhood trauma, growing beyond her control. Imagine carrying that with you. Imagine the barrier that you have to cross to beat Voldemort being your own unbearable, unendurable pain. For Voldemort, this would be nothing. Yeah. Because he has no pain, at least not in this fashion. He has no real attachment. He's preying here on what he thinks makes other people weak, their own fear and terror. But that is, of course, also the source of their strength. The grief that Dumbledore carries is also the force that makes him want to do good, just as it is for Snape, just as it is for Harry. Harry tells him, drink this, drink this, it will be all right. Eight goblets. Dumbledore's pounding the ground at this point with his fists. Nine. He's pleading not to drink anymore, and Harry pushes him on. Quote, Dumbledore drank like a child dying of thirst. He begs as though his insides were on fire. The goblet scrapes against something, the bottom of the basin. Ten. Harry fills the goblet with the dregs as Albus is screaming, I want to die, make it stop, make it stop, I want to die. Harry gives him the goblet and Dumbledore screams, kill me. This, this one will, Harry gasps, not able to know how close to death Dumbledore really is, not knowing what awaits atop the lightning struck tower. And as he hands Albus the last of the potion, the professor gulps it down, gives a shuddering gasp, and crumples face down on the rock. Harry's mentor and protector is out of commission. The reality now of facing the darkness without Dumbledore's wand, his wit, his wisdom, his paternal presence is staring Harry in the face. Harry has faced loss, of course, all his life. His parents were taken from him as a child. Sirius, his godfather, was killed in front of his eyes. But losing Dumbledore would be something altogether different. Harry was one when his parents died. This is not to, in any way, lessen the tragedy of it. He loved Sirius, of course, but in truth, they never got to know each other. They were not that involved in each other's lives. And again, this is not to lessen their relationship. But if anyone could say that they raised Harry, it's Dumbledore. His influence, direct and indirect, shaped all of Harry's life. What would that life be without him? Harry doesn't want to find out. Not now. Not ever. Desperately, he cries out. Casts renovate, shouting no and please. The spell doesn't have any effect. Then Dumbledore's eyes flutter open. The professor asks for water. And Voldemort's foul trap begins to close. Yes. One of the potion's effects is to render the drinker mad with thirst. Recall the line from Samuel Taylor's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. There's lots of water in the cave. Mm-hmm. Black, befouled water covering untold numbers of inferi. And this is the design. Make the seeker crave what he cannot safely have. From the book, he leapt to his feet and seized the goblet he had dropped in the basin. He barely registered the golden locket lying curled beneath it. The locket, but first, the water. Harry tries to cast Aguamenti, a charm he learned this year. The simplest things, as we noted before, are often the best. Voldemort, of course, has thought of that. and The spell conjures water into the crystal goblet. It drains as soon as it appears. Dumbledore again cries out for water. Harry tries desperately and repeatedly to fill the goblet, going mad with worry, a madness and worry magnified tenfold by the simplicity of the thing of which he is being deprived, the basic sustenance of life. The magical being who made it this far would have had to possess incomparable power, and now they would be unable to drink water from a cup. Water. 
That's it. Simply water. The contrast is sadistic majesty from Voldemort, a maniacal deprivation of power, not only over one's enemy, but over oneself. Quote, his brain whirling in panic, Harry knew instinctively the only way to get water because Voldemort had planned it. So, (sighs) I will never forget reading this. He hurls himself to the lake without heed for the dangers lurking beneath it, and he dips the cup into the water. The icy liquid fills the goblet, and it stays there. Sir, here! Harry yelled, and lunging forward, he tipped the water clumsily over Dumbledore's face. It was the best he could do, for the icy feeling on his arm not holding the cup was not the lingering chill of the water. A slimy white hand had gripped his wrist, and the creature to whom it belonged was pulling him slowly backward across the rock. The surface of the lake was no longer mirror smooth. It was churning, and everywhere Harry looked, white heads and hands were emerging from the dark water. Men and women and children with sunken, sightless eyes were moving toward the rock, an army of the dead rising from the black water. It's really terrifying shit. We have spoken before of the perfect symbolism of Voldemort choosing to use in Fury. Choosing to surround himself with beings incapable of love or even thought. Capable only of doing his bidding. Acting on his orders. Harry's soul is whole and vibrant because others give him strength. Voldemort's is shattered because he cares nothing for others. And he surrounded this one shard of his soul with vacant shells, trophies, testaments to his reign of terror. Harry, faced with what this darkness looks like at last, is trying to fight off the inferior, casting Petrificus Totalis at the arm, scrambles to his feet, casts it again at the horde of the undead that are scrambling up the shore of the rocky island, and then Impedimenta and Carceris. Any spell that comes to mind, anything that might save him. And then in his desperation, Sectumsempra. This spell choice is Mm. highly revealing. Not until Harry has no other choice does he resort to this magic again. Magic that he now knows can maim and kill. And even then, he's only doing it against foes who are already dead. The curse slashes at the inferior's ragged clothes and dead skin, but of course they have no blood to spill. They can't feel pain. They press implacably forward, and Harry feels their cold arms encircle him, feels himself being lifted off the ground and carried down to the water, where in the dark he would surely drown. Quote, and he knew there would be no release. that he would be drowned and become one more dead guardian of a fragment of Voldemort's shattered soul. This moment, imagine this feeling that Harry is experiencing here, the sense of utter defeat. Not only failing to stop Voldemort, not only failing to save Dumbledore, but of actually becoming one of Voldemort's soldiers, part of his foul army, an actual piece of the darkness that he's made. From the book, but then through the darkness, fire erupted, crimson and gold, a ring of fire that surrounded the rocks so that the inferior holding Harry so tightly stumbled and faltered. They did not dare pass through the flames to get to the water. Crimson and gold, phoenix colors, the colors of Dumbledore and Gryffindor and his bird and hope and life and rebirth. Dumbledore 
fighting off the potion's effects and snares the inferior in a lasso of flames. From the book, Dumbledore was on his feet again, pale as any of the surrounding inferior, but taller than any two, the fire dancing in his eyes. What an incredible show of strength. This is an unbelievable Just moment. calling forth deep down inside of himself these reserves of strength, already dying, weakened by the potion, and through sheer force of will, he's able to call these flames. What a remarkable lesson for Harry about the power of never giving up, never ending the fight. Dumbledore scoops up the locket, stows it in his robes, and he and Harry make for the boat, scramble aboard. The inferior kept at bay by the flames. Harry's shaking. Dumbledore struggles to get into the boat, and Harry is dismayed now at how frail Dumbledore is. All his effort going into maintaining the flames. Harry tells Dumbledore that he forgot about fire, that he panicked. Quite understandable, Dumbledore says, encouraging Harry. Even now, Harry's afraid of how weak Dumbledore sounds. When the boat reaches the outer rim, Harry as good as carries Dumbledore around the lake back to the entranceway. He tells Harry that he's weak. Harry, in a truly beautiful moment, a moment of growth and strength and pride, courage born from his terror, but strength as well, tells him not to worry. I'll get us back. And he means it. He believes it. Nothing will stop him. From the book, the protection was, after all, well designed, said Dumbledore faintly. One alone could not have done it. You did well, very well, Harry. One alone could not have done it. One of the core lessons of the story. (sighs) I am a mess right now. (laughs) It's an incredible chapter. Harry tells Dumbledore not to speak. The headmaster is slurring his words. And Harry wants him to conserve his strength. At the wall, Harry, injured already from fighting on the island, pays the blood price, and the archway reopens into the night. Harry helps Dumbledore into the water. Quote, it's going to be all right, sir. Harry said over and over again, more worried by Dumbledore's silence than he had been by his weakened voice. We're nearly there. I can apparate us both back. Don't worry. And then we get one of the series' signature lines and moments, an inversion of the moment earlier in the book when Dumbledore told Harry that there was nothing for Harry to fear because Harry was with Dumbledore. A moment that not only forever cements what Dumbledore and Harry just went through together, the strength of their bond, but also officially shifts the power and the burden yes. of being the central figure in the fight against Voldemort from Dumbledore fully to Harry at last. I am not worried, Harry, said Dumbledore, his voice a little stronger despite the freezing water. I am with you. Woof! Oh, my God. Incredible chapter. Ah! Just like a transfixing chapter in this series. It's unbelievable. My personal favorite chapter in the whole book. Mal. There is nothing to be feared from a body any more than there is anything to be feared from this podcast. So please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about inferior. From their first mention in Half-Blood Prince, inferior presented as dangerous and frightening, mm-hmm. with the Ministry security pamphlet urging anybody who sees one to report it in all caps immediately. And when Harry asks Dumbledore about them during their trip to recruit Slughorn, the headmaster doesn't really assuage any concerns, saying, well, they haven't been sighted since Voldemort was last in power. What kind of twisted magic could this be that would scare the Ministry so acutely and that no other practitioner of dark magic would dare to try it? Well, after steady mentions... Throughout the book, including the lovely 
ghosts are transparent exchange with Snape in Defense Against the Dark Arts. Chekhov's and Fury make their foreshadowed appearance at last in the cave. And it turns out there was real reason to be afraid. As Harry learned in Defense Against the Dark Arts, in Fury are reanimated human corpses characterized by their white and cloudy eyes. Because they're already dead, they're effectively immune to a number of spells and physical effects, and they have incredible strength to go along with the sheer terror that a legion of reanimated corpses would naturally inspire. They're mindless on their own, just following their master's orders. But for certain tasks, like guarding a literal piece of one's soul, for instance, that set of characteristics makes them optimal servants. As J.K. Rowling explains on Pottermore, quote, the Inferius may be cursed to respond lethally if disturbed, to kill indiscriminately, and to undertake perilous jobs for its master. For other tasks, however, they wouldn't be nearly so effective because they can't solve problems or think on Tough. their own. In Dumbledore's notes, in The Tales of Beetle the Bard, Dumbledore calls Inferi ghastly puppets and explains that wizards, quote, still have not found a way of reuniting body and soul once death has occurred. Inferi are not the same as zombies, but in a number of respects, they're similar to Game of Thrones as whites, making the scene in the cave the Harry equivalent-ish of Jon Snow's doomed hardhome expedition. Like whites, inferior also vulnerable to fire, as no spell can prevent their flesh from burning. Reanimation is an obvious branch of magic for dark and or curious witches and wizards to explore. So it's likely that Inferi have been used by others in the past, but we know of only two villains who sought to bolster their forces with the monsters. The first is Grindelwald, who is revealed in Deathly Hallows to have considered the Resurrection Stone a means of creating an army of Inferi. Though, given what we know about the Resurrection Stone, which produces thinking but insubstantial replicas of the dead, it seems like Grindelwald was probably mistaken in thinking that the stone could give him this. We don't, as of this point, know if he succeeded in that effort. One of the many things we're looking forward to finding out more about in the Fantastic Beasts films. We know that Voldemort did succeed, though, and that his Inferi consisted mostly of homeless muggles he murdered for the express purpose of creating Inferi, plus dead witches and wizards who, quote, disappeared without explanation. In the cave, Harry suspects that he would join the Inferi army if he drowned, so it's possible that one of the creatures attacking him is, in fact, Regulus Black, who died in the cave. However, while we know the magic to create an Inferius is complex, it's unclear exactly how it works. So we don't know whether Regulus would have become an Inferius automatically after his death at their hands, or if Voldemort would have needed to enchant every one single-handedly. There's one other documented Inferius sighting, and it's kind of a laugh, though still very creepy— at the 2014 Quidditch World Cup, which Vic the Dick yeah, baby, won. Go get that thing. For Bulgaria. Redemption <laughs> to for Vic the Dick. Complete his legendary career. The opening ceremonies were marred by disaster when the various countries' mascots went on a I've rampage. Been, I've been saying this forever. <laughs> the mascots are too dangerous. Jason's seriously, like, number three overall takeaway from the series <laughs> is ban the Vila. <laughs> Giant serpents wreaked havoc. Brazilian forest dwarves got in a lather, and Nigerian vampires grew restless. And as the crowd grew frightened, the rumor that Haiti had brought a group of Inferi was proven, unfortunately, true. As Rowling writes on Pottermore, quote, 
The crowd stampeded as Inferi moved freely through the stadium, attempting to capture and devour anyone who tripped. What a wonderful way to start a sporting event. Hey, at least Crumb caught the snitch. Jason. Yes. Magic always leaves traces. That's right. Foreshadowing, too. So let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Prince, chapters 24 through 26, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one, Harry's book stashing journey into the rumor requirement is full of hugely significant foreshadowing. Chief among it, this line from the Mm -hmm. moment when he marks the spot where he hid his book, quote, seizing the chipped bust of an ugly old warlock from on top of a nearby crate, he stood it on top of the cupboard where the book was now hidden, perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara (laughs) on the statue's head to make it more distinctive. That tarnished tiara will, of course, prove to be Ravenclaw's lost diadem one of Voldemort's horcruxes. Much like the locket at Grimmauld Place, it is casually introduced, gently placed into the story and near Harry's hands long before he or we realize the significance. It is masterful plotting and seed planting from JKR, as is the larger impact of the Room of Requirement being a hiding place for a shard of Voldemort's soul. As mentioned before, when Harry walks in to hide his book, he gasps and observes that the room is full of, quote, what Harry knew must be objects hidden by generations of Hogwarts inhabitants. Contrast this to Voldemort, who, as we learned from Dumbledore during the memory lessons, was powerfully drawn to the castle and not only for its personal significance to him, but also as a stronghold of ancient magic. And who, amazingly, truly incredibly, in his unrivaled hubris, will actually believe that he was unique in discovering this room's secrets. Number two. The diadem isn't the only thing that Harry encounters in the room. He runs right past the vanishing cabinet as well. From the book, he turned right past an enormous stuffed troll, ran on a short way, took a left at the broken vanishing cabinet in which Montague had got lost the previous year. This is agony, especially given Harry's obsession, trying to get into the room and find out what Malfoy is up to. And Harry's knowledge of the cabinet, cabinet's placement at Borgen and Burks and Malfoy's discussion at that store. It's all Right there for Harry, literally close enough to touch. He's been trying to get into Malfoy's workshop, and here he's done it, but he doesn't realize it. Agony. Number three, it is a very, very good thing that Harry didn't actually use his Felix Felicis for Ginny or the rumor requirement. As we discussed, he gave it to his friends. We will learn later that imbibing the liquid luck is what allowed Ron, Hermione, and Ginny to survive, dodging numerous curses, including unforgivables, during the battle. Number four, after Snape stabilizes Malfoy's wounds after the Septum Sempra attack, he suggests that mini Death Eater Jr. use Dittany, a powerful healing herb to avoid scarring. In Hallows, Hermione will use the herb to heal Ron's arm after he splinches it in their disapparation escape from the Ministry of Magic and to heal Harry after he's bitten by Nagini in Godric's Hollow. Number five, Albus passing Madame Rosemurda on his way to the Hogshead oh. seems harmless, but it's huge. As Dumbledore will piece together when talking to Malfoy atop the tower, Rosemurda, under the Imperius curse, tipped off Draco to Dumbledore's absence from the school, at which point Draco acted at last, setting the dark mark trap to lure Dumbledore up to the tower. Number six, the cave story is such a great chapter that I got it tattooed on my forearm. The chapter art from this, I got it tattooed on my arm. It was performed by Lane Freefall, a British tattoo artist, works in Los Angeles here, who, by a weird coincidence, went out for the role of Cho, did not get it, and is also in the latest Star Wars movie, the Han Solo Star Wars movie, as an alien tattoo artist very early in the film. Truly incredible. The tattoo is amazing. She's very talented. The tattoo is amazing. Yeah. 
It's amazing. Lane Freefall, True Tattoo, Hollywood. Maybe that's where I'll go. You keep saying that, and yet it keeps not happening. So let's I'm see what happens. It's, I've heard I'm ready only 5,000 times. But I'm ready now. I'm ready. <laughs> I found my courage. Number yeah. seven. Another rumor requirement nugget. This one kind of fun and weird. The dead creature whose cage Harry stores the prince's book behind was identified by JKR via Twitter as a quintiped, a.k.a. Harry McBoons. <laughs> it is a class XXXXX beast that appears in the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them textbook and earned its nickname from a legend that these human-eating creatures originated from a family, the McBoons, who were transfigured during a drunken, wizarding duel. Tough way to go. Mal! Mm -hmm. Your blood is worth more than mine. Indeed. But you'll need to spill some in the end, just like today's champions. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea who captivated us the most, and today we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to... Grab onto it with both hands, both of you, Albus Dumbledore and Harry Potter. Grab it at the same time. Who else could it be? I mean, it's just incredible. Signature moment in the series and in their lives. I agree. First things first, Harry becomes a man. Boy, does he. Harry becomes a true man. Down by the lake. A different lake. He becomes a, a man by a lake in more than a lot of lakes. Way. A lot of wetness. A lot of wet, moist caves being entered in this. Dumbledore discovers at last, of course. The location of the cave containing, yes. they think, they will be proven wrong, but they think one of Voldemort's horcruxes. Moreover, Dumbledore manages to gain entry, bypassing Voldemort's complex enchantments, something only an accomplished wizard could do. And Dumbledore guzzles those goblets of the emerald Ugh. scissor up, revealing what will again prove to be a fake, but revealing the locket beneath the potion. And they both survive! This is no small feat. They escape the cave, slipping past the hordes of Inferi with Dumbledore, bravely resisting the potion in order to conjure the flaming lasso. And Harry disapparates. Good for him. No license, but he does it. Look, the locket will prove to be a fake. They both endured unimaginable pain and horror in there. It's not like it was a happy time, but it was an incomparable achievement and a beautiful, beautiful moment in their relationship. It's incredible. Yeah. All right, friends, don't start acting as though you understand Quidditch. You'll only embarrass yourselves. Just like Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again next time when we will be discussing Prince, chapters 27 through 30. Till then, remember, we're not worried. We are with you. What's different about you, Harry? Uh, nothing, nothing. Are you sure what's happened? I, nothing at all. What are you talking? You never were a good Ocklemans, Harry. Now let me see. Oh my God. Oh, congratulations, man. Jesus, let me crack open some of the 10 year old scotch I've got over here, my boy. Now, has anybody had the talk with you about, you know, disappearing just so we don't have any. Young Harry's running around at this stage of your life. Oh, we'll talk about that later. Congratulations, my boy. <laughs>